Hello and welcome to episode 124 of the Decarceration Nation podcast, a podcast about radically reimagining America's criminal justice system. I'm Josh Ho. Among other things, I'm formerly incarcerated, a policy analyst, a criminal justice reform advocate, and the author of the book, Writing Your Own Best Story, Addiction and Living Hope. Today's episode is my interview with Michael Deegan McCree about his work in criminal justice reform and about cannabis justice. Michael Deegan McCree is the senior impact strategist at The Last Prison Project. Before joining The Last Prisoner Project, Michael was fighting to end mass incarceration at The Bail Project, where he fought to end pretrial incarceration and the cash bail system. He also worked at DreamCorps Justice, where he helped to lead the legislative campaign that passed the First Step Act through Congress in 2018. That sounds kind of familiar. In the In the following year, he would help to pass the Dignity for Incarcerated Women legislation in four states, in addition to helping to write and pass the Primary Caretakers Act of 2019 in the state of California. Welcome to the Decarceration Nation podcast, Michael. Thank you so much for having me. Um, Been a longtime listener, a huge fan of your your work outside of this podcast. Um, So really happy to be on here to, to have this conversation with you today. Yeah, uh, I always ask the same first question. How did you get from wherever you started in life to where you were working to pass legislation and ultimately working at the Last Prisoner Project? Yeah, um, that's that's a good question. And, and depending on how I answer can be a, a heavy one. But um, I think there are a lot of factors that played into how I got to where I am today and dedicated to, to ending mass incarceration. Um, a big part of my story is that I'm adopted. Um, and through that experience, um, I was directly impacted. One of my, my birth parents, um, was incarcerated for, for a portion of time. And so, um, from a very young age, I was directly impacted, but was, was not really aware of this fact. Um, and so as I, I grew up and, and, um, went through high school and, and, and went through, through college. Um, I did grow up in a household that was very politically involved, um, very social justice involved. I grew up in, um, in the East Bay, Oakland, California, um, where I, I think it's just kind of a culture, uh, right? Where a lot of people are, are involved in social justice. Um, but as, as I graduated and I, I got older, I was lucky enough to work for um, uh, a couple of different organizations um, and uh, and members who were really focused on um, on on justice reform, um, but also as I was coming up um, really early in my career, um, I'd say actually right after college, um, I was dealing with a lot of mental health issues, um, and I was uh, trying to to self medicate. Um, and deal with it myself instead of getting help. Um, and really started heavily drinking um, and, and using drugs. Uh, and one night that led to, to my arrest and, and to my incarceration um, pre-trial. Um, and so, um, you know, that had a huge impact on, on me, my life, and the work that I decided I wanted to do um, when I got into my career. Um, and kind of fast forward a bit, it put, put me in a place where um, I was a staff member for State Senator Nancy Skinner in California. She represents um, the Ninth Senate District and, and is a, a really, really um, important progressive uh, legislator in the state. 
And um, in 2017, we were working on a piece of, of legislation, um, really a, it was, uh, a resolution to end the felony murder rule in California. Uh, and the organization that happens to be um, pushing this, uh, this, this resolution in California um, was uh, Dream Corps Justice, uh, formerly Cut 50. Um, and I got to work uh, not just with, with our staff, but alongside their staff um, at the time, uh, Jessica Jackson, um, Alex Goodich. Uh, and for me, it was the first time where I was working on um, policy that uh, not only represented my beliefs and my views, but also um, represented a portion of who I was and what my story was. Um, and I got to see firsthand the power of directly impacted advocacy um, and, and directly impacted um, legislative work um, and the power of, of storytelling. Um, I think for many who have been um, formerly incarcerated um, or who have been directly impacted, those stories bring a lot of shame and they bring a lot of guilt. Um, and uh, they're portions of ourselves that we hide, right? Um, and that was the first place where um, it was the opposite. It was no, no, your, your story um, is your superpower, right? The, the failures that be of the criminal legal system and the, the intersecting systems, um, th there's a reason for how you ended up where you ended up and, and that story needs to be told. And so after that resolution was passed, um, how emotional I felt, um, how fulfilled I felt, how empowered and accomplished I felt, um, I knew that criminal justice reform was the avenue I needed to walk down as an advocate and become more of an expert on um, so that I could play my role. Um, and so, you know, since, since then, um, you know, I, I, you know, reached out to, to Cut50 to see if there was a way I could become more involved. Um, I was really lucky to be hired on as their policy associate. Um, and that really, I always say, was um, where I got my feet wet and I learned how to swim. Um, the leaders of, of that organization, um, you know, Louis L. Reed, Topeka K. Sam, um, Jessica Jackson, uh, and, and so many others um, taught me how to use my story and also how to develop um, myself as it related to understanding policy a little bit more, but then also find my skills of, of using my voice and being an advocate um, for the overall movement. Um, and, and so, you know, that then led me into working um, at the Bail Project where I was able to do some pretrial um, incarceration work and fighting to end cash bail. Uh, which, you know, so close to my heart because that, that was more in line with my story um, and the experience that I had. And then, um, you know, I, I was able to work with other organizations through this position of being the, um, the National Partnerships Coordinator and, and, and Policy Analyst. Um, and that's how I started to work with um, Last Prisoner Project. Um, you know, they hosted a, a education raiser where um, Reform Alliance, which is another great organization, LPP, and then the Bail Project um, talked about the different avenues of, um, of the movement, right? Uh, parole and probation, pretrial incarceration, resentencing, um, and automatic expungement um, in, in, in cannabis uh, justice policy. 
Um, and I really became interested in the work that they were doing at LPP um, because uh, it being threefold of uh, direct advocacy, um, policy reform work and reentry work as a proof of concept for communities of color and impoverished communities um, and really trying to shrink um, the, the footprint of incarceration in this country um, became a, a huge interest to me. And so, um, you know, I feel like I've, I have hopped around as it relates to um, the different portions of our, our system that um, we'd like to see abolished, um, we'd like to see reformed, um, but it, it's been a really great experience. And I get to, I get to meet people like you who are doing this great work and, and have these great conversations and learn about experiences and stories um, and, uh, you know, I, I'm, I, I, I don't want to speak for everybody, but, um, I can, I can speak for myself in saying that it's also been a really healing experience to find, um, to find my folks and, and fight for, for the ending of mass incarceration in this country. So I've wanted to have uh, you on for a while because while I have talked about drugs in general, I've not really done any episodes about marijuana justice. Right. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the history of the criminal enforcement of marijuana laws in this country? Yeah. So, um, you know, cannabis justice um, finds itself within a, a category that you just um, said that you have talked a bit about, which is the, the war on drugs. Right. Um, and what I think we like to concentrate on when it comes to cannabis justice is the fact that um as a part of the war on drugs that highly targeted impoverished communities, communities of color um, and, and place draconian sentencing um, as it related to, to those uh, defined offenses, um, as it relates to marijuana justice, um, we're in a place where we lived in a prohibition era, right? Where the tough on crime policies applied, where mandatory minimums applied um, and where enhanced sentences applied to um, any, any interaction with the plant, as we may say, um, just like any other offense during the, the tough on crime era and coming into this era. But the, the difference that we're trying to make is embedded in a reality. Right, and this reality is that um, we are now trending in a direction where cannabis is seen as um, a healing agent, um, and it is also seen uh, as no longer being a threat to public safety um, and a market <laughs> that folks are now getting involved in um, as a legal market and moving away from a prohibition era, um, and so the conversations that are so important um, that we're trying to ignite, that we're trying to lead on and that we're trying to empower others to speak about is how um, cannabis has for such a long time. And as we know, federally is still very much attached to um, this, this war on drugs, to um, a stigma around um, illegal narcotics um, and try and move folks out of um, that space and a true understanding um, of cannabis, but also how, um, how our criminal legal system um, has, like amongst other things, very much gotten it wrong. Um, and that 
it should no longer be seen one as a schedule one drug, but also that the harsh penalties that have accompanied um, the possession or the sale um, or, or the use of cannabis um, have always been oppressive, have always been unjust and should no longer be um, uh, treated as such. So, you know, if I go out my door, get in my car, drive down the street, there are probably as many cannabis dispensaries in my neighborhood as there are anything else. <laughs> right. But, but my understanding is that a shockingly large number of people still get ticketed or arrested for pot uh, for cannabis right. every year. Is that is that fair? Yeah, that's that's very fair to say. Um, you know, right now we are in a place where 37 states practice some form of um, of, of non-prohibition policy around cannabis, uh, whether that's full adult use, uh, recreational, um, whether that is, uh, adult medical use, um, or there is the, the decriminalization of cannabis, right? Um, and so in various places, you'll see, um, different types of, of setups. Um, like in, in my home state of California, it is uh, recreational use. Um, you can go to a local dispensary um, and it's like, you know, walking into a bar, right? They check your ID, they let you in and you can purchase whatever you want. Um, but then there are other situations like um, the District of Columbia, right? Where it's decriminalized, um, but there's no free flowing market. Uh, and so the experience still feels very um, criminalized, whether it's decriminalized or not. And um, as we can get into later, law enforcement still uses cannabis as a leverage um, to, um, to, to search, right, uh, personal property, um, to seize property, um, and, and also just to impose control over um, communities of color and impoverished communities as well. Um, and so, like you said, although it is legal in some places or it's decriminalized in some places, um, the, the overall approach, the societal view has not changed, right? That stigma is still attached to it. And so it's still in many places when it says decriminalized um, can still uh, for a certain individual mean that you're still going to be arrested, right? Or you're still going to get a ticket or you're still going to have to pay a fine. Um, and for those who have been, you know, oppressed by the system in general, um, more times than not, uh, you will probably still find yourself arrested um, in the back of a, of a law enforcement vehicle. Um, and so the work that we do or part of the work that we do um, is, is awareness camp campaigns about that um, and then work that uh, tries to, to lessen that possibility, the possibility of that happening to people. And then that also creates a lot of inner and interstate problems. Like I've seen stories of people who, you know, purchased marijuana uh, legally in one state, got in a car, drove to another state where it's not legal, and then get right. get caught up in uh, in that because of what you're talking about in terms of searches. Um, you know, with such a you know, for lack of a better term, kind of federalist patchwork of state laws right now. <laughs> right. And the, the problem with the federal enforcement, I think I remember when I was in uh, incarcerated, I knew a guy whose 
uh, brother had opened a, a marijuana business and then the feds came in, even though it was legal in the state for what he was doing, the feds came in and, and shut him down. Right. So how are, you know, how, how does this, how are you all working in this kind of patchwork of states to try to, or state policies to try to come to, or, or fix any of these problems? Right. Um, well, you know, first of all, I want to touch on just kind of the, the experience that you just um, brought up uh, that that uh, um, one of your your uh, your your friends uh, experience, because we have folks that are just like that as well. Right. Where um, you may not even see the plant, right, or touch the plant, but your involvement in any operation outside of a legally licensed market makes you vulnerable to law enforcement. Um, you know, we have stories of our constituents at the Last Prisoner Project who um, either, you know, lent um, their their vehicle, right? They might own a, a, um, a, a trucking and transportation business and just lent their vehicle to some somebody who was transporting uh, cannabis from a legal state to or through uh, a jurisdiction where it's illegal. Um, and they have been caught up on conspiracy, right? And sentenced. Um, we have constituents who have held money, right? For folks who have um, sold... Uh, uh, outside of the legal market and have also been incarcerated for that. And so um, there's so many ways that law enforcement can leverage um, their tools uh, as it relates to prohibition law and prohibition policy around cannabis. Um, and so those are some of the things that we're trying to fix. Uh, but as it relates to, to our policy work uh, at the Last Prisoner Project, um, they're really uh, two different approaches, two different um, reform policy efforts that we give um, that we're, we're really concentrating on. Um, and, and those two different things are resentencing um, and then automatic record clearance. Um, and so, you know, these are two really, really important portions of the work that we do. Um, yeah, as I think. I think yeah, we'll get into that a, a little bit more in a second. Uh, but it's also correct to say that these kind of legal penalties and this patchwork and everything tend to distribute penalties along fairly racially disparate lines. Is that fair to say as well? One, 100 percent, 100 percent. Could you talk about that a little bit more? Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, it's it's really well known that, you know, in our market, uh, or in, um, in our communities that white folks and black folks, um, use cannabis at pretty much the exact same rate, right? Um, there is no big difference on how much the black community, um, is using marijuana versus the white community. But we know that there is, uh, a huge gap, a huge, uh, uh, gap in our communities as it relates to um, who is being um, arrested, who is being sentenced, uh, convicted, incarcerated, and then uh, has a huge ripple effect right through um, the families that are being impacted, the communities that are being impacted, and ultimately um, the, the support structure that upholds these communities. Um, and so just like any other reform effort, uh, concentrating uh, 
on, on the disproportionate impact of prohibition policies um, is really, really important. Um, and that really comes into the implementation of policy um, and making sure that when we do get into spaces of resentencing or record clearance, making sure that that implementation happens appropriately, right? Because um, if we're not making sure that that happens, if the retroactivity um, of the application of any reform isn't, um, isn't implemented correctly, then the, the disproportionate oppression of the prohibition era will continue to impact generations to come, um, especially in communities of color. And there's also an issue of access to the legal markets, right, in terms of racial disparity. Uh, it seems like ownership tends to not be equally distributed. Am I right there, too? Yeah, I think that's a really good point that you bring up because, um, you know, we are really in the middle of having those types of conversations uh, in the advocacy space, right? And in the reform space as it relates to um, uh, marijuana justice. Um, there's what some folks would see as two sides of, of this effort, right? And there's the, the criminal justice side, um, and then there's the, the social equity side, right? When you're legalizing these markets and you have um, predominantly white, wealthy businessmen and women who have made their money in other sectors, right? Whether that's um, on, on Wall Street or it is um, in the housing market or anything else um, and decide to bring those profits into what is now a, a booming legal market, um, you, you have a leg up, right? Already having that liquid cash, that capital to start your own business. Um, and what a lot of states have tried to do, um, but have mostly all failed to do is put in social equity um, provisions into um, into the, the legislation that they're trying to pass while legalizing cannabis. Uh, but at this moment in time, there has been no successful blueprint um, of a program that really, um, really advances the, uh, the ownership and the, um, the, the, the shortening of the wealth gap for communities of color and impoverished communities um, and impacted communities as it relates to um, the ownership of a cannabis dispensary uh, or, or grow operation. Um, and so it, it's an ongoing conversation. It's a difficult conversation to have because um, I think we all recognize the importance of um, restorative justice as it relates to equitable opportunities for communities that have been impacted. Um, but unlike the criminal justice side of the conversation, there's far less data on what uh, a successful equitable program looks like um, as it relates to um, this new legal market. Um, and, and we recognize how important that is, especially in healing the wrongs that have been um, imposed on these communities. Um, and, and it's important that we do arrive at that space, um, but it is a conversation that takes a lot more thought partnership based on the lack of data that we have uh, as it relates to that portion of the work. But it, it is vital to 
um, moving us forward into a space um, that is equitable and that is fair. We've been seeing a massive and often uh, legal backlash against the notion that structural racism exists in this country. Yeah. Uh, uh, oddly enough, I feel like over-policing of community color, of color, all the stuff we're talking about is part of this structural bias. Do you want to talk about, you know, where we are as a country when it comes to addressing racism? Wow. Um, it's yeah. a very weird time right now. We got a lot of crazy <laughs> stuff going on. You know, it really is is a weird time um, in our country. It's not a, a shocking time, at least as, as a Black American. Um, I'm not shocked. But where we currently are um, is, in a sense, a, a, a new version of rewriting history, right? Um, this is truly a, a revisionist effort on um, the efforts of some who are not willing, um, able, or stable enough to have a conversation about the, the systemic racism that uh, not only continues to oppress communities of color today, um, but that racism, in fact, is the, um, the structural and also um, economic uh, uh, you know, oxygen of, of the United States, right? We were founded uh, on the, the belief that a portion of our citizenry um, was more than uh, another, right? Uh, and so as you, you look at that legacy <clears throat> and then you look at where we currently are in the United States of America, um, racism uh, shows itself in so many different forms, whether it's our criminal legal system, um, whether it's the way that media portrays uh, certain issues that are going on in the community, um, right down to, to the application um, and, and the implementation of, of policies in healthcare um, and policies in education um, and policies in, ag uh, in agriculture and reproductive justice, it touches every single issue that um, Americans interact with and engage with on a daily basis. Um, and it's very, very dangerous when, um, when especially our elected leaders um, and, and various media outlets pitch the education and the transparency of race in this country as teaching new generations of white facing and white American citizens to hate themselves, right? Um, because that's not what this is about. Um, so any issue, criminal justice or, or anything else that involves a conversation of this um, is not only up against reforming its own system, uh, but is up against those um, who you have to work with, not even believing that a conversation around race, which intersects with all of these issues even happening, um, it, it makes it even more difficult to, to accomplish any type of progress, um, but then also just have um, a, a conversation about how that impacts the work that we're doing and how important it is that race is included in those conversations. 
So as we mentioned before, we're in the middle of a bunch of waves of legalization across the country. Uh, for many people, uh, criminalization, at least for personal use, is no longer a problem. But one of your pillars of your pol- of what you all are doing is, as you mentioned before, resentencing. Right. Uh, given the varying levels of criminalization, what is your approach and how is it how is it working? Yeah, so as you mentioned, right, the, there's been advancements of legalization policies across the country, um, but many states fail to, or um, I guess they 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 neglect uh, to repeal things such as mandatory minimum sentences that are associated with cannabis-related crimes, um, and uh, you know that also fails to release or revise sentences of real-life human beings <laughs> that are still incarcerated for that conduct. Um, so for us at The Last Prisoner Project, um, in states where cannabis is legal and people remain incarcerated and under supervision for cannabis-related offenses, um, it's really vital and imperative for us that states start to review and modify their cannabis-related sentences um, so that the practice becomes commonplace that you are releasing individuals from incarceration and you are um, also releasing those who are on supervision when it's appropriate. And even for those who are incarcerated for for multiple convictions, right? Um, You know, maybe they have an offense that isn't cannabis related. Um, That based on law based on the policies at hand, yes, that stays in place, but that that shouldn't make them ineligible in states where it's now becoming legal for them to um, benefit from relief as it relates to the changing policy and law surrounding what their cannabis conviction was, right? Um, And so, yes, resentencing is is a huge part of of that work. Well, I mean, I know from doing a lot of work on things that tried to create retroactivity and resentencing options that that frequently gets judges and prosecutors and lots of other people pretty grumpy because, you know, those are prosecutions that they put forward and stuff like that. Have you, right. uh, how, how are you all wrestling with kind of, you know, for lack of a better term, the, the uh, opposition from kind of entrenched uh, state actors? Yeah, um, that's a great question, right? We we talk about rollbacks in criminal justice reform just as much as anything else. Um, you know, there's always going to be opposition to to resentencing, um, but the way that we deal with it is it, it's a pretty logical stance as it relates to to cannabis justice, right? If you are going to legalize a market um, and you are going to say, hey, look this is no longer a a criminal offense. Um, It's no longer illegal. Uh, It it really is imperative and it's really the moral and ethical thing to do. Um, And quite simple to understand that people should no longer be behind bars Uh, due to that. I I get what you're saying. Like, but you (laughs) and I both worked on the First Step Act and 
you remember that all you know in 2010 they were trying to get crack versus cocaine changed, but they True. didn't make it retroactive. And, and we're a lot still of the not toughest, there. <laughs> yeah, we're still not there. Well, we are there to a certain percent, but we're right. not all the 18 way there. Eighteen to one, not all the way. Yeah. There. Right. But it's not 100 to 1 anymore, which is, you know, but we had to fight our butts off to even get it to 18 to 1, even though they'd already passed the 2010 rule. So I, right. I get what you're saying about the logic of it, but, you know, I don't think our systems generally work on logic as a large. You, you've never lied about that one. That is that is very, very true. Um, I think something that that shows is that um when you're doing when you're doing this resentencing making it retroactive um i think there's a a huge argument for the amount of money right there's always that that conversation as well how much money we're spending right on incarcerating people um and especially when we're able to have conversations with prosecutors with judges um with with uh lawmakers that would align more i think with tough on crime um, and really like to 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 cross their T's and dot their I's um, as it relates to to public safety. It's that conversation about um, you know the interaction with the plant and nonviolent cannabis offenses um, and and how you're spending so much money keeping somebody behind bars um, that is not a threat. Uh, to the community, um, having that conversation and then easing them into um, that resentencing and the the application of that resentencing for folks that are still under government surveillance um, has gone very well um, in, in, in our interactions as it relates to awareness campaigns, legislative campaigns, um, so on and so forth. Uh, and so, you know, obviously keeping our fingers crossed that those conversations continue to trend in that direction, but also that the the data um, that we are able to produce um, over time through our efforts, um, as we know, will continue to, to prove that that, again, is, is the, the, right, the right direction to go um, and, and continuously being aware, as you said, of, you know, just because two plus two equals four and when the the sun shines, the, the sky is blue, doesn't necessarily mean everybody's going to look at it as such. Well, we, you know, I mean, that raised, uh, your answer to that raised a couple more questions for me. The first one is, as there's a lot of people who some of their charges are pot related, some of them can be charges of violence, and some of that is because of the, 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 the fact that it's criminalized, you know, that creates, right. uh, in a lot of senses, the violence. Right. Does y'all's work on resentencing and at the water's edge of people who are doing nonviolent, uh, you know, cannabis use or. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a good question. Um, you know, I think, uh, as we, we both know, every conversation under, under this umbrella, um, sometimes most of the time, unfortunately, uh, gets us to a fork in the road where folks want to pick, Nonviolent versus violent, um, and as you you just said, law enforcement is able to leverage um, something like a, a possession charge and 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 make it spiral um, into something so much more. So in our work at this moment, um, we are concentrating on um, retroactive resentencing, automatic record clearance, as it relates to just specifically nonviolent cannabis. Um, offenses and convictions. 
but that does not mean that we don't believe that the work we are doing can open up a door as a proof of concept to create resentencing for individuals um, that are that are convicted of of offenses that um, may have uh, been placed in the category of uh, of a violent offense or not. Um, so what we're doing is creating what we believe to be a new pathway um, for for states to release folks um, by saying if a law changes in such a way um, that the conduct for which a certain individual um, is currently serving a sentence or is under surveillance is no longer illegal or has um, the, the seriousness of said offense might be lessened, um, that they should have uh, an ability to have their day in court um, and be resentenced, right? So we're, we're leveraging our work to open up a broader conversation, um, whereas right now maybe um, resentencing policy that, that we are supporting or that we've written or we're advocating for may only apply to those who have a nonviolent cannabis um, conviction or, or are being uh, surveillanced due to that. Um, we also attach to our messaging when this conversation is also brought in as a part of the work that we're doing, um, that we believe that um, cannabis resentencing is that proof of concept to demonstrate to lawmakers, to the courts, um, and and to the public that resentencing as a, a broader scale um, uh, campaign um, should be what our community is is working on, what it's pushing for, um, and and when again those laws do change, um, that there do need to be automatic vehicles. Um, that that bring relief to those who are serving sentences, um, not only just for cannabis or cannabis and another offense, but all offenses um, across the board. Yeah, I think I mostly ask that because I know you all have done some work with Michael Thompson, who is uh, right. from Michigan, and his right. case was infinitely more complicated than uh, just a simple nonviolent possession, you know, and uh, ultimately he did get relief. And, uh, you know, so I was just, you know, I, I'm, I'm curious about how those things bridge, you know, uh, given, you know, that you have been involved, at least in some cases with folks who had more. Yeah, I, I think, you know, Michael Thompson is, a um, you know, his story is known nationwide. Um, and I think, uh, you know, he's a, a pretty good example of that, um, right. Serving 23 years, uh, before, behind bars, um, we, we requested for a uh, clemency petition um, and uh, Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer granted uh, said petition. And, you know, I don't think it's too much of a secret that, you know, what we did is we, we leaned heavily on um, the cannabis part of, of, his, of his conviction, right? Um, that using that again as a... Um, I guess as a launching pad or yeah, I mean or just to clarify leverage. for people who might not know this is an example of of habitual sentencing laws where several different things can happen together at once and trigger a very right. long sentence in his case it would have probably been 60 or more years right uh and by disaggregating that you were able to uh kind of get past some of that because of the pot pot being one of the triggering uh conditions correct? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so, um, you know, we were able to, to get Michael Thompson out, 
Um, but but as you said, his case is a is a prime example um, of cannabis being used uh, as as a leverage for law enforcement to then stack charges um, one on top of the other uh, in order to um, impose a a very lengthy. Um, and what we believe to be draconian um, uh, sentence, uh, and then and then conviction. Um, so so that 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 reality still very much remains, right? And so that uh, points to how important it is that not only um, not only are we fighting for uh, legalization, but that we understand. Um, that these policies that we pass during legalization also need to tend to um, the various avenues in which um, law enforcement does use cannabis uh, for further conviction, um, which is why in, in decriminalized jurisdictions, this conversation is still so important, um, again, as it relates to uh, uh, using it for, for further charges and also how much it impacts uh, communities of color um, and impoverished communities. Yeah, and you know, I mean, I think you know, the va- for the vast majority of folks, I mean, hundreds of thousands of people, you know, uh, a pot charge has re- you know, didn't end up necessarily in long term incarceration, but does have really uh, real impacts on your life on an everyday basis, just like any other criminal charge would, regardless of how much time you you serve. Uh, but I think, you know, there are people who are incarcerated who have pot as part of their stew of charges, but there's also, you know, my understanding is it's not a very large percentage of people who end up incarcerated solely for pot. Is that fair? Yeah, I I think where we are today, um, it's less and less that that folks um, would simply, you know, be incarcerated for a lengthy amount of time. Um, due to, to a cannabis conviction, but as as you just said, any conviction, any arrest, any any uh, any uh, collateral consequences run, are real. They're real, <laughs> right? Any any in run with with law enforcement, the moment that you know you're asked to put your hands behind your back and and you have those those uh, handcuffs on your wrists, um, you're 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 in, right? You're you're you've been touched by the system, and and no matter what your your sentence is no matter what the conviction is um even if it's just pre-trial incarceration i don't want to say just i was incarcerated pre-trial and that wasn't a just situation at all um you're going to be impacted and so um the fight has to continue to make sure that that doesn't happen uh just in the last few weeks uh we have seen a huge kind of uh usual suspects right-wing backlash against federal funds that were in intended for harm reduction policies. Right. Uh, even though we were averaging over a hundred thousand overdose deaths a year, you, you know, doing the things the way we normally do them. Uh, I know you're mostly concerned with marijuana, but what should our basic default position as a country be toward dealing with issues like addiction, drug abuse and harm reduction? Uh, I'm really glad that you asked this, and and uh, you know I want to be clear on this. I'm I'm speaking as as Michael Deegan McCree, um, just because LPP doesn't deal with those other issues. But being somebody who um, uh, has substance abuse issues um, and who has gone through uh, um, 
substance abuse therapy and programming, um, you know, it's really important that the approach that we take is harm reduction. Um, when I was arrested um, and incarcerated, I was, I was deep, deep into my addiction, um, had no sense of direction as it related to um, mental health uh, and harm redu reduction therapy. I didn't even know that I, I had the issues that I have, right? Um, and so to use uh, cages as a, as a remedy, as an answer to substance abuse and mental health issues um, is 100% wrong. It is the wrong thing to do, um, not just ethically and morally, um, but it doesn't work, right? And we've seen that for decades upon decades. And so it is really my belief that our approach um, to substance abuse needs to be fully uh, invested in harm reduction. And if that means that there need to be funds appropriated from the federal level, from the state level into the county and, and, and more city local levels to create programming or fund programs that already exist that the community trusts and that's what needs to happen um, but to fund greater law enforcement efforts um, as a means for um, hiding behind uh, public safety and using that um, as, as a fear-mongering tool uh, as it relates to these these overdose deaths um, and and uh, the, the, the volume of drugs that do come into our communities, um, that is not the right answer. And that only exacerbates the, the problem that we have with, with addiction in this country. So another of the pillars of the work your organization does, and we talked about it a little bit already, is working for prisoner release. Do you want to talk right. about that a little bit more? Yeah, uh, definitely want to talk about that. So um, one of those, those, those core factors, right, of reform work is also uh, people will also always come up to, to you and say, okay, well, you know, um, you know, the legislative process um, is slow, right? And it, it, it is, um, it's, it's, it's really, really um, intense. Um, and, and it takes a while to, to get things done. And sometimes you end up not even getting what, what you first set out to do. Um, and while we're fighting this fight, there are, are people from our community that are still behind bars. So, so what are you doing about them? Are, are, you, are you doing any direct advocacy? And um, for us, um, you know, the release of those who are incarcerated for cannabis um, is, is paramount, right? It, it's at the very top of our list. And so um, we have this initiative called uh, the Cannabis Justice Initiative, and um, it's where we have partnered with the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, um, really working um, in the states where it has been legalized, um, retro, uh, where it has been legalized um, recreationally uh, to identify um, legal interventions um, and, and really work to get folks out um, on, on such stances like compassionate release, um, so on and so forth, but also in um, campaigning uh, statewide in those states for um, mass clemency efforts, uh, because that's really, really important as well. There are so many states um, that have legalized uh, cannabis 
but still have human beings that are sitting behind bars and who are, um, you know, as you just brought up, uh, really um, experiencing the full brunt of the collateral consequences that came with their conviction. Um, and so uh, we're really pushing efforts to um, get folks from behind bars in states where it is now legalized, um, but they have not prioritized um, the the release of those folks who are who are still in prison. Um, you know, you also do a lot of work. Uh, we and, and you've talked about this a few uh, times already about in the area of record clearances, something right. uh, near and dear to my my own heart, having worked on clean slate laws uh, several times. Uh, what are y'all doing in this area beyond what we've already discussed? Yeah, um, so automatic record uh, clearing um, is really, really important, as you just said, um, because a criminal, a criminal record can uh, be a huge barrier to many things uh, for somebody who's been incarcerated, right? Um, from employment to housing, uh, financial assistance, um, and so, you know, it's it's unsurprising that in many areas data shows uh, that people released from incarceration fail um, at properly coming back into uh, our communities um, because they don't have the proper resources in place. Um, so we do work um, to advance broad uh, and automatic clean slate initiatives um, and, and really try and streamline the expungement process uh, and the record clearing uh, programs that are put in um, to, to these policies when states decide they wanna legalize um, cannabis. Um, but for us specifically, one of the um, policy campaigns that we're working on right now um, that I think is a great, great example of this work um, is a bill that um, we are advocating for um, and pushing in the state of California, um, which is being carried by uh, a Bay Area representative um, who sits in the assembly, um, Assemblywoman Mia Bonta. Um, and, you know, before I get into the bill itself, I, I do want to give a little bit of background uh, for, for the listeners here um, on, on what's gone on in California. Um, you know, recreational adult use was, um, uh, was, was voted upon by uh, the, the California um, uh, electorate in 2016 um, and, and went into effect um, later on, but in 2018, really on the heels of that legalization, um, there was a, a, a bill that was passed um, by, um, by Assemblyman Rob Bonta, who is actually now the Attorney General um, of the state. Um, and this groundbreaking legislation allowed for the automatic sealing of cannabis criminal records um, uh, for old offenses um, that were no longer illegal, right? Um, and and this, this piece of legislation was, was seen as groundbreaking um, and how it was gonna kind of set the table for states that were gonna legalize in the future and how they would deal with um, the, the collateral consequences, um, but also the disproportionate impact, right, of uh, cannabis prohibition. Um, and, you know, it was really there to heal the harms of uh, the war on drugs. Um, and what it would do is 
uh, it would really um, just clean the slate for those who had been impacted. But unfortunately, um, the implementation uh, of, of this bill um, has been really, really inconsistent, right? Um, that uh, across the state, um, while some counties uh, were really um, motivated uh, and they were proactive in the, their implementation of this bill uh, and, and started to clear the records of folks who had um, been formally convicted, um, a lot of other counties uh, were not as motivated to do so. Um, and, you know, the bill gave um, a deadline itself. It gave a deadline of July 1st of, of 2020 for um, all county district attorneys in the state um, to provide the necessary data to the courts um, so that this process could, could get underway. Um, but again, there was not a ton of motivation um, from many counties to do this. Uh, and so folks who had convictions were, um, were still being impacted by those collateral consequences. Um, and, and so um, what we're doing now is we are um, pushing forward additional legislation that we hope um, will pass and will take care of this. Um, and what this piece of legislation really is gonna do uh, is it establishes a hard deadline by which local courts must seal cannabis criminal records. So instead of um, you know, putting uh, the option on the table and just giving the tools um, to, to district attorneys and the courts, um, it, is, uh, it is directing them, right? That this must be done. Um, right, so we're directing the district attorney and the local courts, along with the, the Department of Justice in California, to complete this work um, of processing past cannabis conviction, convictions that are deemed uh, eligible for automatic sealing. Um, and it also establishes a hard deadline, as I said, um, for the courts um, who, who by now, based on the previous bill, are supposed to have all of the relevant information related to these cases. Um, and so they must be processed. Um, but some other really key portions of this legislation that I think make it really, really strong is that it also is gonna require the Judicial Council to monitor the process um, and, and also to produce a monthly report to the legislature to ensure the compliance with the deadlines and data transparency, right? So the, the previous piece of legislation didn't hold any key deadlines or really any um, accountability vehicle to make sure that, that's, that this process takes place. Um, so it's also gonna require that the Department of Justice um, conducts its own public awareness campaign. Uh, now, why is this important? This is important because um, we often uh, fight for these these uh, these reforms and these changes, um, especially ones that can act retroactively and really bring relief to the incarcerated um, and directly impacted communities. But nobody knows about them, right? <laughs> nobody tells folks um, that these tools have been put in place um, and and that these processes exist. Uh, and so, um, it's going to be incumbent upon the Department of Justice in California to, to, to put 
forward a public awareness campaign as well, um, along with, with organizations such as ourselves who, who will gladly do so to make sure that folks understand um, that the, this policy has put, been put in place. Um, and, and, you know, I, I really want to um, harp on how important uh, automatic clearance uh, can be, especially um, as it relates to, to cannabis. Um, the process of having your record automatically cleared brings so much relief um, and gives so, gives so much agency to an individual um, and allows for them to really you know, write their next chapter um, without the imposition um, of government surveillance um, or, or collateral consequences. And by way of that, uh, can really help to heal a community that has been uh, vastly impacted by um, this prohibition era. Um, so, you know, automatic record clearance is, is at the very, very top of the work that we're doing at LPP and is very, very important, not only to our constituents, um, but to the greater uh, uh, criminal justice movement at large. Last Prisoner Project is also involved in reentry. Uh, what are y'all doing to help folks with marijuana charges be successful in returning from incarceration? Yeah, I, that's also really, really a big part of our work. Um, and I think it's one of the big intersections between the work that our policy team does and the work that our impact and reentry team uh, is doing as well, right? Um, just coming off of talking about uh, automatic record clearance, um, that's really, really important uh, in order for folks to be eligible for uh, certain programs that can help them transition and get back on their feet. Um, but as equally as important um, is, is showing folks who are directly impacted, um, our constituents here at LPP, uh, a roadmap, right? A blueprint of what that looks like. Um, and so there are many programs um, and initiatives that we are running, uh, but the foundation of our reentry programming um, from the very start was our micro grant program. Um, this, specific, this specific initiative um, is literally for anybody who has been directly impacted by the war on cannabis. So whether you spent time behind bars um, because of your involvement with the plant, um, if you um, uh, spent time in pretrial incarceration, if you are the brother, sister, aunt, uncle, parent, um, or child of somebody who's been impacted, um, we are giving out micro grants uh, to help assist those stay on or get back on their feet. Um, and really relieve um, the, the, the economic um, punishment that many are experiencing due to uh, being impacted by cannabis prohibition. Um, so a lot of our candidates um, and constituents uh, initially apply uh, because they just need, um, they need a little bit of, of financial assistance, um, but we also really are trying to pay attention to for what, right? Um, our hope is to have a, a really um, invested understanding of what categories those who have been impacted are, are really trying to um, get, uh, get 
get the funds for, whether it's housing, um, are they trying to start their own business? And so do they need, need some funds to help with that? Um, are they looking to go back to school? Um, and so they, they, need, they need help with that. Um, we also, uh, this program isn't just about folks who are already home. It's also for constituents of ours who we are working with um, through our, our cannabis justice initiative, which I mentioned earlier, they may have loved ones um, who are on the outside that do need this assistance because the lack of, of, um, of support uh, that they have because they have an incarcerated loved one um, is really impacting them. We have a constituent whose, whose child is um, now going off and trying to um, uh, accomplish getting their law degree. And so, um, you know, as much help as we can give, give to her um, through this program is really, really important. Um, but on top of that, our reentry program this year, um, now that we have had uh, three years of success um, doing our micro grant program, um, we're trying to start two other initiatives that I'm really, really excited and we'll be launching um, at the end of, of this first quarter this year in March. Um, and that is already to hire campaign um, and our computers for constituents campaign. Um, and really the, the titles of both of them kind of say it. Um, Ready to hire um, is rooted in our ability to help our constituents and those who have been uh, impacted by the war on cannabis uh, um, to uh, be ready to come back into the professional world, right? As we know, folks who spend time behind bars, um, you know, no matter how long they've been away, um, the current developments of how you interact with the professional world, um, even just the tools that you need and the resources that you have to have to be competitive, right? Um, having a, a, um, a well put together resume, um, understanding how to write a cover letter, um, understanding how to negotiate with a, a possible employer um, for salary. All of these things are really, really important. Um, and so uh, already to hire initiative is about partnering with organizations who are in the cannabis space and who are outside of the cannabis space that are willing to um, help our constituents get the upper leg that they need uh, in this, in this uh, industry. Um, and, and really advance their ability to uh, build a career for themselves that, um, that they can take pride in um, and, and that they see as a foundation for um, their own lives moving forward. And as it relates to our other initiative, Computers for Constituents, um, it kind of walks hand in hand, right, with uh, the Ready to Hire initiative um, we're partnering with organizations um, that uh, are willing to uh, either one, give um, direct resources. So as we know, a lot of organizations, um, they buy computers for their employees. And at a certain time, um, they decide to buy new computers for their employees and just have a backstock um, of, of very, very um, advanced computers and laptops um, that, that they are not using anymore. And so we're partnering with organizations that are willing um, to give and understand the importance of, um, of giving and donating uh, computers for our constituents to use for professional um, and educational advancement. 
and then other organizations that also understand the importance of this um, that are willing to give uh, monetary resources for us as an organization to go out um, and purchase uh, computers for our constituents so that they have the necessary resources, the necessary, necessary tools to uh, move forward uh, uh, in the professional or an educational um, endeavor. Um, and, and so, you know, one of the things that I, I want to say that's really, really important about reentry work as a whole is that um, we can pass as many pieces of legislation as, as, as we fight for um, and, and hold the powers that be accountable for the implementation of these policies. Um, but, you know, we can't just open uh, the prison gates um, to opportunity for, for those who are directly impacted. We also need to give those who are impacted the tools to walk through those gates and, and be successful, right, in the 21st century um, United States. And, and whatever that means, it is incumbent on the community to uh, give that support uh, and make sure that folks are ready, um, not just on, on, on our end, those who have been directly impacted, but we also need to be um, advocating for organizations and companies across the country to understand and become aware of what it means to get involved with reentry um, and second chance hiring initiatives as well. Um, so we're entering into a 2022 election cycle that seems uh, outwardly hostile to progress on the issues that we're talking about. Uh, we've got a media environment that's definitely pushed against that. And we still have a lot of people in this country who seem to feel that marijuana is dangerous and represents a public safety problem. Uh, what are you all doing to try to change the narrative around that stuff? Yeah, so uh, public awareness campaigns are, are really important to us, um, I think. You know, we really try our best to concentrate on, on criminal justice um, as it relates to this issue. Um, as you said, there, there's a lot that surrounds this issue because it, um, it really does have uh, a stigma attached to it that um, it accompanies um, a downturn in public safety something that we all know that the media really likes to latch on to. Um, but our work really surrounds um, campaigns proving that, um, you know, the marijuana industry as it relates to public safety uh, really, um, really only shows uh, a, a negative impact on public safety as it relates to um, the, the lack of, of structure that is, is in the market, right? Um, and that, uh, that the legalization and the decriminalization actually advance public safety um, more than anything uh, and that they, don't, that they cannot uh, be tied in the media um, to an uptick in, um, in crime as the media likes to do uh, with many different efforts as it relates to criminal justice reform. Uh, so uh, a couple of years ago, uh, someone who's a listener to the podcast suggested that I start asking for book recommendations. As you can, if you look behind me, you'll see I, I like books quite a bit. Right. Uh, so I always ask if there's any criminal justice related books that you might recommend to others, ones that you particularly enjoy. 
I think that's really, really important. Um, and I love that uh, you bring that up. I'm, I'm looking at the library behind you um, and I see a lot of my favorites. Um, I think one that... That's a good way to cheat is like no one's ever done that before, <laughs> but you could just pick one of the books in the background. And... I could, I could. Yeah. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I swear. Uh, for those of you that, that are listening, they can't see, but um, one of the books that I really, really enjoy um, is, or enjoyed was Locking Up Our Own um, by James Foreman Jr., um, who was a, a former... Um, a, a public defender in Washington, D.C., and also is a um, professor of, of law at um, Yale uh, Law School. Um, and the reason why I'm picking this book specifically is because it talks a lot about um, the involvement that communities of color um, and, and uh, those who are really still in power today, who are leaders of the Black community, um, the Latinx community, um, who come from impoverished communities, what hand they had in um, building this machine of tough on crime policies um, that we're working so hard to, to reform and abolish today. Um, and the reason why I think this book is so important um, is not just because of that, um, that high level topic that it's talking about, but also how um, it brings in the conversation of, yes, these communities were asking for more police, um, you know, more money to build up prosecutors' offices, harsher sentences, but there's a whole part of that conversation and that narrative that is missed and that's not talked about, which is these communities were also asking for more funds as it related to um, mental health, um, resources, uh, resources for those who were dealing with substance abuse and addiction, um, resources to um, invest in um, more community uh, programming for, for youth and for disadvantaged um, portions of the community. Uh, and those resources that were asked for didn't come, right? Um, that the side of uh, of, of resources as it related to um, law enforcement and um, your traditional uh, um, forms of, of public safety as we know them to be uh, right now were given and were imposed on these communities, but the, the partner that was asked for in um, restorative uh, community resources was not. Um, and, and talking about how that led to um, so much oppression um, and so much abuse um, within these communities, uh, I think is a really important conversation that needs to continue um, throughout the, the movement for criminal justice reform um, and the ending of mass incarceration as well. So I think that that's a perfect book for people to pick up at some point. I'm always happy when people mention that book because this podcast in five years has only won one award and it was for the episode where I was interviewing James oh, Foreman Jr. I didn't about know his book. That. That's <laughs> awesome. Yeah, he's great. He's great. <laughs> so uh, that that's a special, in, in my heart, that's a special episode because uh, we got some recognition for that one. Uh, I always ask the same last question. What did I mess up? What question should I have asked but did not? Uh 
what question should you have asked that you did? And it's fair to say you don't have, some people do, some people don't have an answer to this. It's just, I, I like to end on a humility question. So, um, you know what, if, if I was to think about a question that you haven't asked, um, you know, I, I think, I think you hit, you hit on all of them. Um, the only question that I would have asked that you did not, uh, is what, uh, an involvement has come from um, the more corporate side of um, the cannabis uh, legalization uh, movement, and um, and how can those who uh, aren't involved in criminal justice get involved in this this niche portion of the movement itself? And your answer would be. <laughs> so my answer would be to the first portion of that question is that um, as I've stepped into this space, right, I've been in criminal justice for a while, but stepping into the, the marijuana um, criminal justice space, we have to interact with those who are really just uh, interested in, in making the almighty dollar as it relates to this new legalized uh, market. Um, and you know, I would I would say that we do have um, many organizations that uh, that do give funds to LPP and give funds to other um, cannabis uh, advocacy organizations. Um, but I think it's really important that these organizations get even more involved past. Um, the effort of, of, of writing a check, right? Um, understanding what it means uh, to be involved with fair chance hiring, understanding what that means for somebody who has been incarcerated um, and how you extend dignity and grace to a community of people that um, have been abused um, and abused uh, by by a, a market that was once illegal, but now that you are benefiting from, I think that's really really important. And then to answer the second part of that question, for folks who um, you know uh, are listening to this podcast or who are first time listeners, or maybe who haven't given much thought to um, the intersection of cannabis and, and criminal justice, um, I would really encourage you to go to our website, which is www.lastprisonerproject.org, um, and you know, spend half an hour, just spend half an hour grooming through, um, you know, some of the pages um, of, of the campaigns and initiatives and programs that I've referenced um, during this interview um, and, and, and get involved, right? Reach out to, uh, to our organization um, about ways in which you can get involved. We have a letter writing campaign um, where, where you can write back and forth with a constituent of ours that's, that's still um, incarcerated. You can donate to our micro-grant program that is helping folks who um, are, are coming home uh, get on their feet. Um, and there are going to be a plethora of ways um, that you can get uh, more involved um, in this movement. And then I think the, the last uh, way that I would say to get involved, especially if um, you're working at an organization that's interested in fair chance hiring, um, you know, contact uh, us at LPP because we're working with some of our reentry partners um, on fair chance hiring fairs around the country for um, organizations to come out to specifically have access to those who have been impacted by the war on drugs and the war on cannabis. Um, and so we will 
um, you know, do an intro uh, interview with you and your leadership about what fair chance hiring looks like, um, uh, how to get involved, and then how to make sure that your organization is not only at these fair chance hiring fairs, but also um, how your organization can uh, funnel job opportunities through us here at LPP and other organizations in the space to make sure that those impacted, um, you know, kind of have a first dibs as it relates to, to some of these positions as well. Um, so, so that's a way that you can get involved if, if you haven't been yet. Well, thanks so much for doing this. It was really nice of you to take the time and I'm really glad we finally got you me. on. Yeah, I, I really, really appreciate it. Um, and and how much I, I love this podcast in challenging the way that we talk about ending mass incarceration and the impacts of the criminal legal system. Um, there needs to be more like it. There really, really does. Um, so thank you so, so much for the work that, that you're doing um, and also for, for having me on today. Of course. Thanks so much for being here. All righty. Bye-bye. And now, my take. I've stayed away from the topic of cannabis for almost five years. I stayed away largely because I think that we, way too often, think that marijuana enforcement is at the heart of mass incarceration. It is not. Relatively few people have state prison sentences solely for the use or sale of marijuana. However, and this is important, a huge amount of people get criminal records and come into contact with the criminal justice system solely because of pot, and a hugely disparate amount of those people are brown and black. Cannabis justice is racial justice, and even if you have not gone to prison for using marijuana, a criminal record impacts your ability to get a job, get housing, and, and it can even impact voting rights and access to other important rights throughout our society. Cannabis can also trigger habitual sentences or be combined with other charges to be part of a long and indeterminate sentence, as we saw in the case here in Michigan with Michael Thompson. I apologize for ignoring this topic for as long as I have, but I also want to make sure that the people who listen to this podcast understand how complicated mass incarceration is and how many levels and issues are involved. As always, you can find the show notes or leave us a comment at decarcerationnation.com. If you want to support the podcast directly, you can do so from patreon.com slash decarcerationnation. For those of you who prefer a one-time donation, you can now go to our website and give a one-time donation. Thanks to all of you who've joined us from Patreon or have given a donation. You can also support us in other non-monetary ways by leaving a five-star review from iTunes or add us on Stitcher, Spotify, or from your favorite podcast app. Special thanks to Andrew Stein, who does the editing and post-production for me, to Anne Espo for helping with our transcripts and social media images, and to Alex Mayo, who helped with our website. Make sure and add us on social media and share our posts across your network. Also thanks to my employer, Safe and Just Michigan, for helping to support the Decarceration Nation podcast. Thanks so much for listening to the Decarceration Nation podcast. See you next time.